Hi everyone, my name is Kwame Wino uh, from the Institute of Economic Affairs and I'm thankful to have you all here for this uh, Twitter Spaces discussion. Uh, thanks to my colleagues Oscar and uh, Michelle who act as our hosts. So what I'll be doing today is basically we have an hour and I'll discuss something about uh, uh, free speech in Kenya and what it means, whether speech can be equated to violence. You can tell already that I don't think it is. And thereafter, open up for a, a discussion or Q&A and hope that we are done within an hour. So I intend to keep it uh, just that simple. Uh, and we'll also be very, very quick. So thanks, everyone. So what's the idea? The Institute of Economic Affairs is a think tank. I work as a chief executive officer and I work together with 23 colleagues. Uh, and we are grateful for this opportunity. Part of what the IEA exists to do is to surface uh, uh, important discussions regarding Kenya's public affairs in general, but also more clearly specific areas in Kenya's economic policy. Now, I'll just go straight to, to the issue. I'll speak to you for 20 minutes and then I'll open up for any questions. I think the way to start this conversation is to ask ourselves, um, what do I aim for? I think the, the function of this is not necessarily to convince anybody and it's structured as a monologue in the sense that I debate with myself about what uh, I see as a state of free speech in Kenya, but more importantly informed by recent events and what I might think of as some trends, what are its effects. So the discussion I'm going to have with you is split into four areas. So the first question is, uh, or rather I'll start with an introduction, then I'll talk about how does the market for free expression form or how does it arise? And then the second part is basically what is the value and logic of the limitations uh, and some of the exceptions that we've been debated as Kenyan, Kenyans over the last week. And then I'll speak about the main part, which is basically I'll describe what I think are some of the effects of the approach to political speech and free speech in Kenya and what are some of the effects that I see, uh, whether intended or unintended effects. And I'll conclude with uh, three points. So let me start with anything this. Now, if anyone in Kenya needs any evidence that uh, we have little faith or we do not have as much faith in the abstract law called the constitutional order, then I think this year, 2022, will provide several instances to answer that question. The reason I mention that is because every year we have these rituals that we tell ourselves, but every year we get to the point where we question whether all the constitutional rights and the permissions granted to citizens should be quote-unquote exercised because the elections year is one in which uh, Kenyans usually are jittery. And it is informed um, by, of course, some history. And the understandable interpretation that it is a that the elections actually show the fragility of the Kenyan state. But what it does is that it gets us to the point where we question and we surrender uh, to the ideas of those in authority in sort of to the authority of ideas. So it's the election season. It leads people who would otherwise be very, very reasonable to be less outspoken and especially more circumspect. We use a lot of euphemisms when we could speak more clearly. Um, and I think uh, we start to use platitudes uh, in addition to uh, the belief that the most important thing for the Republic is for the time to pass, and that if there are any difficult or other questions that should be had, they should be, uh, they should be held or um, they should be adjusted for or left for the future. So that's the, the background against which we have this, um, against which we are holding this discussion today. And the primary thing for me is basically not just to say because everybody knows what uh, the general conversation is, but the primary thing for me as Kwame is to ask ourselves, uh, what are the costs that we pay uh, for the choices that we've made about how political expression is governed, regulated, uh, or even permitted um, in the Republic? So I'll start with a quotation from Nurt Wixell was a, an economist, a Swedish economist. Um, and he says that the basis for coercion must be consent. So even if uh, permissions would be taken away, there must be our consent. And I'm wondering whether we have the consent for the kind of limitations or the quality of free speech 
uh, that we've given, that we've permitted, um, based on obviously on our conversation that's been going on, and which I don't want to allude to directly. So the only thing I'd say, ladies and gentlemen, is that this discussion is not about what happened in political rallies and what has been the subject of papers and the social media more recently. Instead, as I said, I'm debating with myself about what the state of free speech is in Kenya or freedom of expression is in Kenya, but more particularly, what are the consequences of the choices that have been made regarding the format of political speech that is required, I mean, that is agreed upon, or which Kenyans are most comfortable with so far. So I will start with how does the market for free expression form? I think I'll use the, <clears throat> I analogize, I use an analogy for free expression to say that it is a market. And what is it a market for? It is a market for the expression of ideas. They might be social, they might be political, they might be economic, they might be ideas of any kind, even religious. And that's what free expression is supposed to facilitate. Uh, political expression, of course, is just one form and one fashion out of that. So I start with the first question which I ask myself is, how does the market for free expression fall? And to my mind, obviously it comes from the constitution, which everybody knows. So because I'm not a lawyer, I'm not going to debate law with, with lawyers. All I'm trying to say is this. An economist, political economist that I like, called Mike Munger, says that the constitution is a common vocab for vocabulary for any society to conduct public affairs and governance. It means a common vocabulary in the sense that the content of the constitution provides us, if I may say, with the content upon which we can talk about the rules that govern us and the vocabulary by being what is defined within the constitution becomes uh, the content upon which we debate how society is governed or we draw the boundaries within our society. I agree with that. So coming back down to answer the questions more directly about how does free expression form, how does the market? It's clear that Article 33 provides that every individual has the right to freedom of expression, the right to freedom of expression. And then in 33, Article 33.1 of the Kenyan Constitution, it says that right includes freedom to seek, receive, or impart information or ideas. Remember, there's no qualification for whether those ideas are political, social, if I may say, cultural, religious, whatever. Uh, it just says that that freedom of expression includes the freedom to seek, to receive, or to impart information or ideas. So reception and imparting them. And remember that all these could be done. You seeking could be mutually exclusive, but it is also possible that in freedom of expression, a person may, or people, or groups of people, may actually run the entire government, starting from seeking, receiving, imparting information or ideas. So we say many political economists more recently say that they, we have or rather have a definition of institutions which is not in the form that the conventional wisdom and dictionaries define it uh, so it's a question of language so when they talk about institutions they would mean for instance government is an institution but they say that the constitution is the result of the formation of institutions now those institutions are the core ideas that are central to the operation of society, both the political, the economic, and the social. So for instance, rights are an institution. So say private rights, property rights, uh, the right to life, uh, central principles of the constitution such as the, the central principles of the constitution such as separation of powers is an institution of the constitution. Um, to that extent, to the extent that the constitution provides a bill of rights, the bill of rights itself is an institution um, for the purposes of uh, this, this, this form of understanding. So I take it that you would be convinced or you will permit me to use the word institutions, capital I, meaning that the right to expression is, quote unquote, an institution or within the Kenyan constitution. So it's institutionalized within the constitution because it provides rules uh, and rules upon which public life is supposed to be organized, interpreted, seen. Regardless of that, of course, there are limitations. And limitations are some of the things that we have been discussed following those speeches 
and the content of those speeches that we've been looking at more recently. And he says that the limitations, says that the right to freedom of expression does not extend to propaganda for war, incitement to violence, hate speech, advocacy of hatred, and all that. So basically, it says that while the institution is available, that, constitution, that institution of free speech itself, within the bigger rights, are also constrained. And that's sensible. Even though <laughs> uh, many people who construct constitutions think it very, very interesting that usually the way you do a right is you provide a right as a given, or what you do is you simply provide the exceptions. So that, so for instance, you'd say that the rights, these, the following things are forbidden. And then anything else outside that becomes uh, permissible. So if I go back to our market uh, analogy of the institution of free speech, it provides the emergence of a market for individuals or collectives. Basically, it can be an individual, it could be a collective. Collectives could be clubs, political parties, for instance, um, interest groups of any kind to develop exchange and broadcast ideas. And that's basically what was happening within the political meetings that we, that were uh, seen a couple of weeks back in Kenya, I mean, a couple of days back. So if we accept that there's a, and this is not a new idea, I mean, it's available in the economics literature. So the right to expression provides a market for ideas, be they political or not. So here we are speaking about political markets for ideas. Uh, and the main actors on the supply side for political speech would be political actors, of which, of course, members of parliament um, and, and people with a political role, whether in their parties, nationally, are actually on the supply side because they are supplying political speech. Uh, the media, by reporting on that speech, are also recipients, but also on one side, also supplying that speech to whoever it is whom uh, they interact with or receive news or interpretation from them. Individuals, myself, everybody else with an opinion about a political issue could actually be a purveyor and therefore a supplier of the speech itself. So there are many people uh, and the supply methods are political rallies, interviews, publications, and debates, including what we have together as, a, as, a, as a, uh, this monologue. How about the demand side? This is interesting because we know about the supply side are the people who produce the content of political messaging in whichever form. On the demand side are individuals such as ourselves. You can be both a purveyor and a receiver. So in one party to be demand and it could be voters if the function is to influence people for a specific uh, electoral outcome. And the reason I mentioned voters is because we think in Kenyans, and I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a it's, it's, if I may say, it's a phenomenon that people think should be observed a little bit more during an elections year. For whatever hangups we have about elections, influence how much political speech we are prepared to allow. And then, of course, the arbiter. So there's a market where there's the demand side and there's the supply side. And that demand and supply generates content which is absorbed by all manner of people, depending on whether the supplier uh, meets the audience. So that's, a, that's, a, that's, a basic, uh, that's the basic uh, setup. So it answers my first question now, how does the market form? The market forms because they are institution of free speech or freedom of expression. Sorry, free speech is more American, but freedom of expression is what the Kenyan constitution provides. And that freedom of expression then leads to uh, an institution of those rights. Those rights can then be quote-unquote exercised. There's a demand side and there's a supply side. Remember that the constitution does not qualify that that content must necessarily be popular, that that content must necessarily be something that meets everybody's view about what ethical communication is. So those are interpretations that could be given and always the courts have interpreted these in many ways. But all I'm trying to bring us to is an understanding that we could equate the rights that the post-constitution, the institutions that the constitution has provided in terms of freedom of expression, creating a market for the demand and the supply side for political speech, or including other forms of speech. And then people think that the arbiter should be the government or institutions of government. In many cases, depending on who you think about it, the arbiters could be 
I mean, um, institutions that generate um, that regulate communication, what can be communicated. We could talk about the National Cohesion and Integration Commission comes in up there, or government in general, which I call the coercive in chief, bringing in its coercive um, capability to determine the frameworks, the boundaries of that communication in the demand supply nexus. So that's the crude um, analogy. I go now to the second question, which is basically, what is the value and logic of these limitations? Remember we discussed that article 33 provides for that, and then 33.1 talks about what the freedom may be used for, to seek, to receive, or to impart. And then obviously we have article 33.2, uh, which talks about the limits, and obviously under what circumstances um, um, freedom of speech may be uh, limited. It provides all manner of things, including hate speech, uh, propaganda. I mentioned all those uh, already. So that's that's how we 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 that's the state of play. So let's go to the second one. Now, what is the value and the logic of the limitation? And here again, I try and use a political economy lens to try and find out what's the value of this. What informs the idea? I, unlike many people, don't think that the people who crafted Kenya's constitution they were capable men and women. But I do not think that they were infallible. But remember, Kenya's constitution was also the result of a referendum process. Uh, and it's a participatory process uh, to the extent that it, that was possible. Um, but the value and the logic of the limitation that we've seen uh, stated, on the one side a right is provided, the institution is stated, and that institution, part of what that institution claims, or rather qualifies, is while you have this right or this market will exist, that market will have certain confines. And, and obviously things are stated. You're not allowed to, to purvey ideas regarding propaganda for war, not allowed to have ideas talking about uh, hate speech, um, propaganda for war. Uh, exclusions include, let me, let me just read them out. Um, so here's a market, but you're saying right to freedom of expression does not include propaganda for war, incitement to violent, violence, hate speech, and anything else that may cause disaffection between people, and obviously the care for people's reputations. Um, which is quite some amount to be analyzed, I mean, to be, to be weighed. So what is the value and the logic of these limitations? And to my view, before we even talk about the value and logic, there are two things that come here when you look at those four questions. One of them is that we are making two assumptions, two big assumptions and one small one. So the first assumption is for political speech, especially as purveyors, the supply side. So the first assumption is that politicians gain from the use of dog whistle politics. And by dog whistle politics, it's basically about using coded language, which people have spoken about regarding um, that polka dot reference or that color reference that some politicians have made over time and uh, metaphors that they've used regarding which people interpret as potentially discriminatory, violent, and stuff like that. And there's an assumption that politicians deliberately gain, use this because they gain from dog whistle politics. And this justifies, therefore, placement of the limitations on the speech. There's a huge assumption on that. And that is almost accepted as a truism. And I think this is one of the areas which uh, there might be truth in it, uh, but also why people assume that it's every single action which agitates people is necessarily one that requires us to interpret the mind of a politician and decide that, or rather, of a communicator um, a purveyor of political speech, and therefore decide that this expression cannot have been meant any other way except the way that we have interpreted it. And we, a small group of people, a big group of people, therefore interpret it in this way, and therefore some action. Um, this is what the constitution meant should have been um, should have been uh, prohibited. So that's that's the first assumption. So the first assumption is that assumption that dog whistle politics. Uh, benefit some politicians and therefore they're going to issue it against the public interest or in a way that might harm peace and harmony. So the second assumption, another big one, is that hate speech and divisive expressions provide direct channels from speech to agitation and to violence. 
the assumption here, especially about one of those we've been debating as a country, I mean, as Kenyans, individuals, is this idea that the theory of the speech is that the theory is that speech is equal to or approximates violence when it maintains certain code words, certain, uh, it's expressed in certain ways, certain code words, certain symbols and stuff like that. Um, therefore, it has a divisive character and therefore, because Kenya has a history of elevated political uh, contests which lead to violence, it is assumed that what leads to that violence is speech, and therefore that speech needs to be curtailed, leading us to refer back to the constitutional limitation, and there, it is therefore justified. Leading us to this view that even the arguments we've had, and a majority of the population, at least people who express themselves, seem to think that politicians or one politician in the rally um, held last week overstated facts or intended to cause, regardless of his saying that, look, that's not what I intended. I used a Kiswahili word, which many people interpreted, but I meant it in a different way. But I think that's not just important about the words that we use. The important th thing that I saw was the idea that we are almost equating speech or certain vocabulary with violence. For that reason, hacking back to the constitutional limitation and saying, yes, this is what the constitution intended for us to control. And the third part, which is a small, small uh, assumption. So the first assumption was the assumption of dog whistle politics benefits politicians. I don't know that that's true. The second one is that hate speech and divisive expressions um, are a direct channel. So you come from one, and the theory of hate speech is that speech is calculated in specific ways to lead to violence, and therefore that speech is directly the cause of violence, and you can therefore equate them. So those are the big assumptions. The small assumption is that language is perfect. Uh, that expressions will only mean what some people mean, and it cannot mean any other. For that reason, certain vocabulary should be redlined. Now, even if we take all those assumptions as true, it therefore means that the market effect of these limitations is the suppression of supply. Remember, you're suppressing some political speech by certain people, um, prosecuting them, um, making them have to pay to lose their right to bail and their freedom because there's, so you're weighing their freedom of expression and deciding that the freedom of expression if violated denies them the freedom to actually walk around until they're able to produce bail terms and whatever that are very harsh. And this is not the first time, this has happened periodically and it is especially elevated during elections. Um, so the bucket effect of these limitations is the expression of political speech. And that we think that they are suitcase words, again, uh, choice words that I got from Munga, uh, suitcase words or phrases. And those suitcase words or phrases in this place, this is the only time I'm going to mention it, is Madadoa or Polkadot, right? Uh, so therefore the truncation of vocabularies and dictionaries should be such that we should stop using certain emotive words. You should see the number of times emotive words and the number of times heightening emotions have appeared in social media, whichever you, you're more familiar with. Very little pushback is given to this theory, or very little ideas are given. It is taken as given that a person who expresses himself in that way, if it is suspected, ought to be investigated. Clips are being brought of other politicians who made that, and for that reason, we say that yes, the constitutional order is protected because it has allowed us to use existing constitutional instruments to investigate somebody. Regardless of who we ask is the real complainant, there's an assumption that a crime has been committed, and there's an assumption that political speech being regulated or suppressed is important. But the important thing is this. We, are not, we, are take, we take the demand side as a given and assume that it is a person who supplies this speech who should be responsible for consequences that are not yet shown, but consequences that we think might result. And therefore, the, the, the prosecution and the use of public resources to prosecute and investigate is justified. So remember, I use suitcase words. So there's these suitcase words that must be kept entirely locked because they're emotive. And here we are packing more words into that suitcase saying these words ought not to be used in a political environment, but more especially as political speech in specific areas or to specific people and by specific people. 
So the demand side is taken as a given. It's a supplier who's held responsible for supplying hate speech, which, in, which is interesting for the market side. Uh, so the focus of supply makes the regulation of this market similar to, to just the claim, obviously, as people used to say, just say no, which is that basically uh, and supply separation. So it leads me to the fact when a market exists, there's a demand and supply side. And I think we need to ask ourselves whether the demand side is really that strong. And if it does, if it does, then we have to ask ourselves, why do we think we should su suppress supply and not the demand? Who is responding? Or who would be activated by the speech to get the effect that we assume would result if that speech was not suppressed? But what I'm saying here is that the way we are, the, the, the assumption that's suppressing through these constitutional instruments, the supply side or the purveyors, means, or are they similar in my view to a market in which you suppress supply, such as the market for drugs, where you say that, look, the way to do this is actually to find out, to, to extinguish an undesired market is actually to find out who's supplying false or goods that are considered dangerous, such as narcotics, and to suppress supply. Um, if that analogy is accepted, and I think it is an appropriate one, then it is telling us that trying to suppress supply when demand exists and is persistent is actually wrong choices, um, wrong-headed, mistaken, and will probably fail. Because what tends to happen is you drive this speech underground, it fragments it, but what more happens then is that the people who specify for the purposes of narcotics, the people who are able to supply it through very efficient pipelines and machinery, tend to then thrive. So it consolidates the industry among a few people. Um, so you can tell about the cartels. Now, I'm not going to say that cartels for, for hate speech will result in Kenya or purveyors of hate speech will result in Kenya, but all I'm trying to say is that if this demand exists and we are reacting as if the demand exists and therefore we need to suppress supply, then it means that the Constitution is ordering us to suppress supply. It does not say anything much about demand except when people act on it. If that demand exists, then perhaps it's a demand we should have concentrated on. Um, why? To make sure that a market with a supply and without demand usually does not endure. A market in which demand exists and with which one supply is taken out only means that tomorrow we'll have another equally brave person who will cite the same thing and make it look as if he's a martyr being condemned for stating what people want to hear or people know is true, but should not be said for the fact that it makes a sweat mm -hmm. under the collar. Um, so, so I think we question the understanding of this kind of regulation. Um, it's a suboptimal mechanism for management of hate speech or to ensuring that there'll be no incitement to violence. Uh, and this is not to say that incitement to violence is right. It's to say that the methods of choice tells me that if our analogy of a market and then the narcotics bucket or contraband is taken, if demand is strong and enduring, suppliers always emerge. Because people who demand would even be prepared to pay the price, which would be whatever ways. And we know that the circulation of political messaging right now is not confined either to political rallies or newspapers. There are many ways in which the same messages will be supplied. So unless we are picking on a certain person just to make an example, it is clear to me that it is suboptimal to concentrate. And if the NCIC should be advised, perhaps they should recognize that summoning people and Kenya's history also shows that all the people who've always gone under this messaging, especially at this kind of time, uh, very few of them have, have, have been uh, prosecuted, leading me to the view that perhaps the deterrent effect is not as strong as people think. So that's fast. So we've come from asking ourselves, how do the markets form? I've come to ask ourselves, what is the value of these limitations? Again, using the market analogy, I'll go to the third and main point that I'll be making today, which is, what are the effects of suppression of political speech as I see them in Kenya? And I've isolated six points. I'll rush through them very, very quickly. The first is I think there's a weakening of civil society. Now, by civil society, I don't mean NGOs and institutions that are organized to, to organize around conversations with government and fellow, fellow citizens. I mean anybody who does not work into the pub, in the public sector and has views. It weakens civil society for this reason. 
the existence of civil society is classically for people, citizens, Kenyans, to have conversations with each other, which they may use to infuse into the body politic or to infuse into the broader discussions. Once discussions are suppressed, for whatever reasons, they might be religious, they might be security, whatever reasons those discussions may be, we have created a fragile and artificial consensus that whether it's the elections of 2007, 2002, whatever elections that we that lead us to this fear, we have created the view that the only cause of fracture in society is heightened talk by heightened political discourse. I am not too sure that that theory maintains. Or the literature I've read is not. It's stated as platitudes that this ought to be an obvious thing, that if you do not see, something is wrong with you or you're enabling divisive talk. I'm not too sure that that's right. So we've created a fragile and artificial consensus on the genesis of crime and violence. And it re-emphasizes, this is why it weakens civil society, it re-emphasizes the place of using government instruments to mediate discussions between citizens. The belief here is that citizens would not have these discussions in a rational way, except if government cut out by saying, this is the agenda that might be handled in public. Otherwise, we have criminalized this kind of thought, including criminalizing specific words and their use in public or in social settings. That creates a weaker civil society because it's elevating the space of government. And remember, Government's main role in society about providing certain goods is as the coercer in chief, the person who forces things to happen through the threat of violence. So that's first. The second one is, I think there's an inversion of the responsibility for order. By this I mean, remember that government has legitimate roles provided through the institutions of the constitution, whether the presidency, whether the legislature, and whether uh, the judiciary. All those are institutions provided with specific instruments. And the rights that citizens have through these institutions, as I said, and government's role is to maintain through its various arms the constitutional order. We act as if speech must be constrained because without it being constrained, whether we like it or whether it's popular or not, it is the responsibility of citizens, private citizens, or political actors to create or to maintain an order which government should do on its own. So we are transferring obligations to create and maintain social order to citizens, to groups, and to society away from government's responsibility. In other words, government tells you, look, you will complicate our job. And because we suspect we are not sufficiently competent to protect every person in County X, we therefore ask you not to engage in free speech or in your own expressions or to use certain words within your dictionary because it will make our work difficult or it will show us for failures and we do not wish to do that. I think that's a dangerous slip as well. The third, uh, uh, one of the things that these are all I'm speaking here with respect to Kenya. I'm not talking about any other society. And societies have different ways of actually regulating speech. But I'm talking about regulating political, the discourse in political markets in Kenya, political discourse market in Kenya. One, I see what I call vanilla patriotism. One of the things that has worried me over the last 10 years, and I've, honestly, is there's a clamor in Kenya for people to compete about who's more patriotic than the other. And vanilla patriotism, my own words, is people telling each other, I am more patriotic than you, and I hate those words or those phrases, and so you must hate them too. Otherwise, you are creating social dysfunction. Um, very dangerous, if not necessarily also a possible slippage into a fascist republic. So what I'm trying to say is this. I tried to monitor, actually my motivation to speak about this, I have no superior knowledge about politics than your average Joe, but what worried me is when I examined this discourse in newspapers, in the various publics rather, newspapers, the suppliers of, 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 of political discourse, there seems to be 
almost near consensus. The patriot is the person who says that certain words used, whether somebody intended to injure the social fabric or not, if any one person is uncomfortable with them or a sufficiently large number is uncomfortable with them, then we should let it be. And it was toxic. I mean, it was all out there. Other is your toxic person and everything else. I say this because particularly when I stated on Saturday that and I did not intend to wade into this topic, but I said that, yes, we must discuss bad manners by politicians and unrestrained speech. Um, but we are making leaps in logic to claim that we read the minds of politicians. And if you use certain words that are emotive to us, it can only mean the worst. And therefore, if you're a person who says, guys, guys, let's take a look first. Let's back up and still ask ourselves, is it really true that the only way in which these words can be understood is the way in which, or rather the worst uh, interpretation that you're giving them? Then that makes you necessary. So people say things such as, so people say things such as, you hear people say things such as, Nobody has a right to speech to injure anybody's emotions. Really? Really? Um, that you can decide for me that if I say something that injures your emotions, then I am less patriotic? Really? Let me tell you what. Speaking for myself, my name is Kwame, and one of the things that I know a little bit is about economic history. And I'm glad that we live in a country in which there are socialists about and there are communists as well debating economics with me. Half the time, to be honest, they don't know what they're talking about. And sometimes what I say or what they say could injure my, my uh, thinking. Even my sensibilities about people who speak staggering nonsense about economics, staggering, staggeringly ignorant nonsense about economics. But they have that respect for me, to the extent that it can be provided, only because of Article 33 that we even have a right, and we should maintain the right, for people who think themselves others belong to one party or the other to say nonsense. That's it. And I cannot therefore claim, even while I think I know a little bit more about socialist history than, and economic history than they do, that they are therefore should be curtailed from saying that. We should win or lose those debates, and we cannot be afraid of stating them out of our own sense of fragility. I think we are too fragile a society and this vanilla patriotism is something that I don't. So wear all the colors you want to of the Kenyan flag, but please take a step back from claiming that if you have a belief about something that government thinks is true today, whether it's standard gauge railway or whatever other magic you're going to create, that you're a greater patriot if somebody else thinks about it. And I saw this being pervaded shamelessly, people saying things such that, that, uh, that, that, that hate speech is violence. Sorry, we have reasons to be, and if you do not, that hate speech is violence, and if you do not believe it, you're a hater, and therefore um, uh, insufficiently patriotic. I do not think that I need another citizen to be the metric upon which my patriotism is measured. And I think many other people ought not to go there. That's a very fascist idea. And I think Kenya, as Kenyans, and I say this because I'm one person who sits here as a purveyor of information that people do not agree with, sometimes agree with, but I'd like to not be disarmed by, being, by the claim that I'm a patriot. I'm not in competition with anybody to be patriots. If there are 50 million patriots, I'd be the 50th, 50 millionth on the list, and I'm okay with my position there. I did not want to contribute uh, to, to compete. The third one, so I think I, I don't want to hear this. I, I'm conscious about this idea that I'm more patriotic than you, and what you agree with is supposed to be a badge of your father, um, um, where we hide behind, where people hide behind questioning what they really believe under um, the love for the country. I've never shed tears for Kenya. Um, I don't think anybody should, but those who do, I respect it. But you do not believe you're more patriotic because you have shed tears and harm. Um, anyway, the fourth point is the truncation of our vocabulary. So there's a form of a magical dictionary that is being provided to us, which is, please cut out the word polka dot from your, or dots, or whatever it means, spots, from your dictionary because it makes us uncomfortable. 
cut out the words ethnicity, we might soon cut it out because I see somebody who's called, told me that uh, he's a tribeless youth and he thinks that we should cut out ethnicity. I did not see any point that whenever we have a debate of free speech, it should come back to ethnicity. I think we have too many hang-ups. Um, and asking us to truncate a dictionary uh, for languages or to simply say that this language cannot be used in this place uh, is far too thin-skinned in my view. We see a lot of that in Kenya as well. Fifth, because of the existence of a weakening civil society in terms of the protection of free rights, inverting responsibility uh, for the social order from government to the citizen, and vanilla patriotism and the truncation of vocabulary, the convergence of these factors leads to a penalty of low quality discourse. I, I must say this with circumspection. The quality of discourse around this issue, among many others in Kenya, is very low, if one was to be honest. Part of it is, of course, the shouting towards at each other. And part of it is that what then happens is dissent and the views of people on the fringes are never debated because either they are shut down or we make people guilty for holding certain views which we don't. For instance, it has become a truism to say in Kenya that ethnicity is not a problem. That, 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 no, tribalism is a problem, that being tribal or ethnicity, whatever that means, those truisms which are basically like an aphorism, completely saying nonsense, um, people coming out and saying we are tribalist youth or we are tribalist whatever, middle-aged Kenyans and other complete nonsense, uh, when all we are dealing with is to ask ourselves, prejudice and its expression through political power is dangerous to everybody, regardless of political and ethnic affiliation. And, and I think the quality of discourse around ethnicity, the quality of discourse about the role of government, the quality of discourse even about the capability of political leaders, the quality of discourse about whether younger leaders necessarily is really constrained because you cannot question people or you cannot question things. It is almost as if some national discourse is, is getting to the point of religiosity which cannot be questioned. And what that means is nobody should come back and ask, for instance, the question. And I need to ask this question. Is it really true, because we are making this quick claim, that some political speech and some vocabulary could cause anger in people? So that's the premise. Because of anger, some people respond violently. Therefore, we are saying that use of that word will necessarily lead to violence. That's a leap in logic. But nobody's questioning that. We're accepting it because it's an accepted theory of political electoral contests in Kenya, a theory that is not really true, even if some people pervade it again and again, because it makes us comfortable. And we therefore do not dissect by asking ourselves, are we making the assumption that the average Kenyan is so gullible that a politician mentioning one word only makes him see that as meaning that the next day I see somebody with a shirt that is not pink because our party shirt is pink, I should harm him. I disagree with that. I disagree with that, and those are not questioned because people think those are difficult questions. But the reason I mention this is this. Kenya's political, economic, and social challenges are so deep and so complex that you cannot have a conversation of adults, and by adults I mean um, insightful and extract insights and inspiration without wading into these difficult areas, without. So for instance, are the differences in Kenya economically and politically, things that we predisposed to because of our electoral conferences, I mean, electoral, electoral choices, are they conditioned by politics? Are they even conditioned just by the fact that other people are harder workers than others? Because you hear that. Other people are smarter than others. We cannot get to start discussing that. Other people, we cannot get to discuss that if we are afraid of opening wounds. And finally, it's an abrogation of individual responsibility, where they're saying that the state is our parent. And so if you hear speeches from Kwame or somebody else, you might harm your neighbor, and we don't want you to harm your neighbor, therefore don't even say that. And what you're doing, is infantilizing all of us by claiming that we are so emotionally on the edge 
that if I hear somebody use certain words, whatever they might be, whatever those words might be, it will incite in me such an irrational emotion that the only response to that is not for me to examine whether I am predisposed to irrational behavior generally or whether it is convenient to blame politicians for the fact that there are many people who cannot be restrained by other questions. Because if politicians were really that powerful, if politicians were really that powerful, I'm not too sure that they'd wait until elections come to be able to use, I mean, to start using uh, or to activate their suitcase of words that we think, or vocabulary that we think is, is harmful. So I'll conclude. If you remember anything, it's just those six questions. Weakening civil society, inviting responsibility for order, vanilla patriotism, truncation of the vocabulary, penalty of law, quality discourse, and of course the final one is abrogation of individual responsibility that we cannot think for ourselves. So I conclude, it is not self-evident to me that the, the truncation of political speech and dog whistle politics is the channel for violence in Kenya, for solving the violence during elections. It's not clear to me. And I also think that damping down the public discourse on controversial and noxious debates has costs. And I don't think that we've sufficiently seen those costs. I've talked about some of the effects as I see them. I also think that there's no chance that Kenyans can discuss our most salient challenges regarding the role of the state and this polity without difficult and confronting stereotypical and annoying speech. So if we don't want to do that, it means we are kicking these balls into the future and failing to acknowledge that some people actually need and are not just trying to use this to divide, are actually seeking real answers for whether these differences that we talk about or the different perceptions that we have are necessarily innate or whether they're actually the causes of, a, of, of, of fracture. Um, so we have to stop this idea that because some elevated speech can cause anger in one person or the other, and that anger can lead to violence, that necessarily means that speech is equivalent to violence. I disagree. This is a fat and convenient fallacy. And I think one of the things that we need to ask ourselves is what are the controversial polarizing things in Kenya today? And in my view, those are the things that the National Cohesion and Integration Commission should concentrate on. Laying bare the facts and allowing for these things to be said. Taking politicians on the round, putting them uh, uh, enclosed for two days and then letting them go. Uh, because if you look at the record, there are very few of them have actually had to pay a price for that, suggesting to us that perhaps we are regulating the wrong things. Thank you. All right, folks, let me see if anyone has a question. Uh, we have just about 10 or 12 minutes. Sorry, I took longer than I thought, but uh, we'll handle this for another 15 minutes. If you have any questions, please do. I have my notes here, which will be circulated through the IEA, so you can ask us if you want to look at the notes. It's just a two-pager with the notes about what I said. But if anybody has a question, I'd like to try and respond to it. So let me hear anyone who has a question. Does anyone have a question? Anyone? All right. Uh, <laughs> looks like nobody has. So what I'll do, looks like nobody has a question. So I think I'll let uh, my colleague, uh, Michelle, um, to say something. If you did, if you did receive any questions on, on DM or any, or any other surface, and then I can respond to that uh, if it's allowable, or if I can. But if that doesn't happen, then I'll just make conclusion remarks for two minutes, and then I'll leave this uh, space open for a couple of minutes so that whoever wants to follow can follow, and whoever has, uh, you can either follow the IEA, I hope you don't have to follow me, you follow the IEA or follow each other, and then hope that uh, this has been useful. Uh, it was intended as a monologue, but yes, my colleagues asked me to take a few questions where possible. Are you there, Michelle? Yes, Kome, I'm in. We don't have any questions on our DM. All right. Okay. So let me take my two minutes to, to, to conclude. I said three things, four things. One, how does the market for free expression form? I used an analogy of a market to talk about the demand and supply side. 
and what role government plays. And then I ask myself that, yes, according to Article 33 and that part of the Constitution, 2 and 3, there are limits that have been placed on the, what freedom of, 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 of expression means. And the limitations are that the right to freedom of expression does not extend to propaganda for war, incitement to violence, hate speech, advocacy, and hatred. And hatred. Um, so that's it. Then I asked what is the value and the logic of those limitations. And I stated the assumptions that come with that. One of the first ones is that hate speech and expressions come from the theory that speech can lead to violence. Obviously, violence must be, must be, must be avoided at all times. And then the second assumption is the dog whistle one, that politicians gain from causing dysfunction or disaffection between people. The third one is that language is perfect and that everybody understands at all times what somebody says and everybody should therefore be careful, whether on a political, public or private platform. Um, the third part is which I think is the most important thing for me, that the choices that have been made and the public support, which I think is grand. If you ask me, many Kenyans, there are few Kenyans who actually think um, or rather express different views about constraining or tethering politicians or political communication, especially on elections year. Uh, so there's this deep point. And the effects are six. So the first one is weakening of civil society, inverting responsibility for creating order. The third is vanilla patriotism. The fourth is that we are truncating vocabulary by making certain things not usable, partly because it might create a misunderstanding, and misunderstanding cannot be clarified through further communication. We simply assume that let's shut it down. The fourth is that the penalty that we pay for the existence of the first four is the penalty of low quality discuss in some areas. And actually, not only low quality, insufficient quantity. So Kenyans tend to rehash the same arguments about the same things. And the fourth one is that the appropriation of individual responsibility. And this worries me because it gives a role for everybody to think that government is our parent and the government should govern what we say. But also, more importantly, the government is our parent. So if somebody says something that injures me, my profession, my ethnic group, or whatever club that I belong to, I should go to government to shut them so that I can feel like I'm a king, even if all I am is just a commoner. So all of us exist, and the public discourse is about congratulating self-laudatory memorabilia, which I don't think is, is right. So that's it, and then I concluded with the fact that for Kenya to actually, if we think of the polity as Kenya, for which the institution of the constitution provides sub-institutions that we talked about, big I, some very difficult conversations need to take place in Kenya. I also don't think that a politician using color or alluding to metaphors is the biggest risk that the Republic faces in terms of a fracture when we have an election year. Um, and we are paying a price. Fine, if we accept that those are the prices we should pay, I think we are paying too heavy a price for being too jittery about what free expression um, should be. So that's it, guys. Um, I hope this has been useful. If it's useful, fine. If it's stuff you've heard before, Thank you too, and thanks for respecting our invitation. I thank my colleagues uh, for arranging this and all of you for being in here. Thank you.